Hi, this is Joe Kwan, the Connection Counselor, and thank you for listening to Executive Presence Morsels. Today's bonus episode is brought to you by our sponsors. This is Joe Kwan, the Connection Counselor. Do you look forward to attending another ho-hum lecture masquerading as a workshop? Ever notice how by the end, a lot of people have tuned out and no one has any questions for the instructor? If you could attend a workshop that prioritizes your engagement so you get the most out of the time spent, would you look forward to it? If you truly want to invest in your leadership learning this year, join us for our monthly Connection Counselor Workshop, where your participation is the key. Every month, we dive into another difficult leadership challenge and explore it together. Register for our next workshop now and watch recordings of previous ones at connectioncounselor.com forward slash workshop. Thank you. Welcome to Executive Presence Morsels collab series, another bonus episode of Executive Presence Morsels. This is where we experiment by combining different disciplines with executive presence to see what happens. I'm Joe Kwan, your host, and today we are so happy to have with us Chief Learning Officer at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and my former colleague and friend, Jeremy Manjorin. How are you doing today, Jeremy? I'm doing really well, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to speak with you today. Yeah, and, and I know this is sort of a continuation of a, of a conversation we used to have when we used to have a hallway <laughs> that we could go to uh, at KPMG, and you were involved in learning there. Now you're over um, at the Fed, so super excited to continue the conversation with you. It's great. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So, just wanted to jump in real quick, and, you know, this is, I think, probably typical for a lot of your folks uh, that you have hosted, but, you know, the views that I express are my own and don't necessarily represent those of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or the system. I just wanted to, you know, get that disclaimer out there, so I'm covered, and we can have a really good discussion now. Thanks. Thanks so much. Appreciate that. All right. So today we're going to kick it off. And I have so many questions for you, Jeremy. I had to sort of focus my brain a little bit. <laughs> but, but why don't we start off with, with something a little bit um, specific. Uh, curious from your perspective, and, and you have tons of experience teaching, designing, you know, uh, yep. classes, engaging vendors to deliver. Curious to get your sort of high level thoughts on what makes learning, right? And we can pay for learning, that's fine. But what makes learning engaging Hmm. and effective? So this is not a long enough podcast or series to really tackle that, but <laughs> it's it's one of my favorite questions. So having done some work in the past on <clears throat> what makes, you know, as a growing up as like an instructional designer, uh, you know, I was always curious as to what what's the differentiator between a really good learning experience and a really terrible one. And we did a lot of um, exploration of this topic, both from a, you know, like a traditional research perspective, and then also just, you know, anecdotally auditing so many different classes, you know, throughout my career and, and really seeing what takes good training and makes it great. And we, you know, there's, there's really three pillars to this. A motivated learner leads to a higher degree of engagement in that learning event. 
And a higher degree of engagement leads to better retention. And what that means is you have better retention of that the learning objectives or the outcomes or the material you're trying to understand when you need it later on down the road. So you're, you're able to retain and recall that knowledge at the point of need on the job. And that's really what we're trying to accomplish with a lot of learning, right? And it really, it's topic agnostic. It doesn't matter if it's technical training or if it's a competency or soft skill or business skill or, or any, any subject at all. It really kind of boils down to get your learner motivated, increases their engagement, you increase their engagement, you increase their retention. If you increase their retention, they have better recall down the road. So um, that makes so much sense to me. Um, MER, I'm going to try to remember that as an acronym, <laughs> motivated engagement, retention. It's kind of, uh, I studied French for a while, MER, you know, it's like the C. The C, C that's right. Learning. C um, learning. So uh, let me parse it a little bit for you, right? Um, and, and ask a, a even more specific question. Um, what's the difference to you between uh, a, a training that is just engaging but doesn't really teach anything versus the one that's engaging and actually like, you know, when you talk about the retention and it's ready, right? Because to me, like you can have something that's very engaging but not useful and you can, right. you know, but I feel like you need to have both. So could you talk a little bit about that? So, it, yeah, it's a really, it's interesting. And, and I mean, you know, what we're always striving for something that's really, really engaging, but you have a great takeaway. <laughs> what it, it sounds like is more like when you have a really engaging discussion and it's, it's fantastic and it resonates with you, but you actually don't take away a lot from that. There's the difference between structured learning and unstructured. So really we can have a great discussion right now um, but, you know, we're not actually practicing necessarily specific techniques towards engagement and retention. Uh, I'm very motivated on the topic and I'm very engaged. And hopefully your listeners will retain some of this through that discussion. But it's not, you know, a formally structured event where we're actually asking people to practically apply what they're hearing or learning and then use that or recall that later on down the road. And that can be the big difference, really. So one of the things we talk about is effective learning is the right content plus the ability or activity to practice it and then getting feedback from that activity. And that's really how learning kind of solidifies in, in the brain. The difference is what you were talking about is we're going to have a great discussion and it's going to be very engaging, but we're really not actively practicing it. We're really not going to apply it. We're just having a great discussion and people can then take that information and then explore it on their own down the road. But true learning events actually give you that activation or that ability to apply it or practice it and then give you feedback on what was right, what was wrong, or what they should go forward with. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know what? It resonates a lot with me, Jeremy. And what's so interesting is I've seen this done well in trainings. And I've seen it done badly. I'm sure all the listeners have been to a training where they're like, open up to workbook, page 56, <laughs> you know, get in your small group, try this exercise. And, and it's like, it's like this real nominal attempt at what you're talking about, but yeah. I wouldn't call it the same thing as like, let's make it physical. Like you go out on a tennis court and you hit a bunch of volleys, like you're actually using it. And you yes. know, when you miss the ball and when you strike <laughs> the ball correctly. Right. So yeah. doing that worksheet, you know, so, um, I'm just curious, like, what have you seen in terms of more effective yeah. kind of structured learning and practice? Because I feel like a lot of people or even vendors attempt to do it, but not all of them actually succeed. At least that's been my own personal experience. 
And it, it really does depend on what you're trying to convey and the learning that you're trying to get to. So there are certain things that, you know, formalized learning, especially in an, in an organization, a large organization, it can get you so far. Like it can give you awareness. It can even get you to a higher level of proficiency in that skill or that topic. But it's never going to take you to mastery because mastery requires that practice. It really requires those hours of, of, of application in order to get there. So what you can do from a learning perspective and, and your tennis analogy is fantastic, right? Because that is, I mean, that's the epitome of activity and feedback immediately and then growth from that. But we can't always do that in some of the topics or the learning we're doing. So there are certain techniques that are great. And depending on what you're trying to do, a simulation of an environment can be very, very effective, right? Oh, so yeah. if I drop you into a specific environment and there can be emotional connection to that, it can be a positive emotional connection or a negative. Both of them are really good at getting engagement and solidifying that learning. But if I can, if I can immerse you in that environment, or I can give you a case study or a real world scenario that is extremely applicable to your role or your career or your development aspirations, it will have that impact. And the SIM aspect gives you the ability to practice in a safe space and get that immediate feedback. You can make wrong decisions in a simulated environment or in a practice area and get that immediate feedback and learn from it. A, a great example of this is, and there's lots of different simulations. There's leadership simulations, with, there's decision-making simulations, and then there's technical simulations that'll walk you through, you know, various um, areas, uh, you know, can be platforms or, or systems and things like that. But for example, a leadership simulation can pose very challenging questions to you. As a leader, how would you handle specific situations and then have impacts from your decisions that cascade through that sim? And when I say sim, I want to be careful that people aren't thinking some, you know, very heavy digital like computer based sim that they have to like, you know, engage with like a video game. It, it, it can be, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Really, I'm talking about simulating an environment that you would encounter that gives you a place to practice. So that is one example of how you can really get that practical activity or application and that immediate feedback and see down, downstream consequence of your actions, either positive or negative in that environment. That's one really good example of it. But simulations can be hard to develop. They can be longer scale type of, of things. What works really well for certain topics too is that real world case study that connects to your role or your job. So like you said, I'm in the training, I've got my workbook, open to page 30, get with your partner, answer these questions or go through this scenario and give me your answers. And, and that is effective. It can be effective if it's connected directly to the topic, directly to the learning outcomes and directly to um, the, the, uh, the, the, the need of the learner. But really, if you can role play a specific case study and really put yourself in the shoes of someone and really start to understand or use the empathy to connect to the emotions and then connect to that learning outcome or that learning objective, that can be extremely powerful as well. And it allows you to learn from the responses you're getting based off your actions in that role play and that scenario. It's almost like a mini sim and that it can be extremely effective. Now, I know I've said a lot and I want to pause there to give you a chance to respond, but does that resonate with, you know, what you were looking for, what you're asking? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I got to say, if you take a look at a lot of trainings, corporate trainings, and you and I have sat through many of the same <laughs> trainings, um, the ratio seems off a little bit, right? It's it's lecture, 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 <laughs> right? And then, you know, five minutes of, of, of the real deal. And, and one thing that I've noticed, and would love to get your thoughts on this, is it is not easy to find that fine line between I want to be uncomfortable as a learner, but I want to be uncomfortable because I'm trying to apply something that I'm starting to learn. I don't want to be uncomfortable because what I'm doing makes no sense to me. And I'm just like wandering around and blundering because if that happens, I feel like the instructional part, it's again, to use the tennis analogy, if you don't teach me how to hit the ball and you just start hitting balls at me, like I need a little bit of the training. So I say, okay, I'm not going to be like Roger Federer, but like I have a shot right? Of, yes. of, of hitting the ball. So how do, how do you f- sort of <laughs> find that fine line? Because you want people to be uncomfortable, but not like despondent that they're like never going to be able to do it. So I, I love this question and it's almost like you, you teed it up, even though I know you didn't, but it's so great because <sighs> there, you know, learning has been transforming as you know, most fields do. And, and, things used to be far more lecture-based and lecture still has an appropriate place. You know, it's like, it's another piece of toolkit and it can be valuable depending on how you apply it. But there's been this kind of shift from what I'd call in a lecture heavy environment, the sage on the stage, right? And the sage on the stage is I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to let you drive. Right. And you're going to, you're going to pour your knowledge into me. And you know, there's, there is, um, you know, having that authority in front of you and having that someone with that kind of experience is great. And it's very, very valuable and it's important. But then where you're shifting to is the guide on the side. And that's where facilitation is key. So the sage on the stage is that lecture, very heavy, you know, very, I'm going to tell you exactly what's up. The guide on the side is almost like that coaching principle from a facilitation perspective where you are there to practice and you are there to make mistakes in a safe space. And the guide is there to help correct some of that or to point out when something worked really well that you did. And that is a key concept to what we try and do with either virtual or in-person facilitation. Little tougher to do in e-learning, not impossible, but it, it, it's really the difference is what you're talking about there. And establishing that guide on the side type of mentality and that you're going to practice in this session. You're not just going to listen and take notes, but you're going to apply. And I'm, I might give you an expert model, but that's only for a constructivist approach to let you build off something, to let you scaffold off that extra uh, that expert model and then apply it to this topic or the learning outcomes that we're looking or desired to get. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it resonates a lot with me. And I got to say, um, the sage on the stage, everyone kind of like gets that, right? Like we've all right. seen that. We've watched TED Talks. We've hired people to do fancy keynotes. And, and it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's almost like a, I, I, I liken it to um, like a religious experience, right? It's like the preacher on the stage and everyone's right. like, hallelujah, and you leave and we're going to take <laughs> over the world. And, and really for most people, it fizzles out after, you know, a couple hours or like a week, right? Um, not, not, not to, you know, play down those things, but you know, that that's a, that's a pretty common experience. The um, guide on the side to me seems to me um, a very different skill set. And I've seen people who do it really well yes. in training. Yes. And I've seen other people who are just not kind of, yeah. at, uh, can you talk a little bit about 100%. that skill? Cause it's very interesting to me. You're a hundred percent right. So the, the, 
the difference is in, in this is is really um, <laughs> you don't have to necessarily have all the answers, right? So the 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 sage on the stage and they they kind of come in having all those answers, and it's great when you can do a question and answer with them, and you can ask you know specific questions that that their experience and their their research or or their you know the status whatever can provide those answers and it gives you really great stuff to think of, but you're right. It's usually not the most impactful thing unless you can apply it to your own situation. Whereas that facilitated event, which gives you the space to not only consume some of the content, but then actually apply it and practice it and then get a little bit of course correction is far more dynamic for the individual, for the learner as a learning experience, right? And that's key. And I I guess I'd say, for me, this is something I I often do is I try and think back to think about one of the coolest or best or most impactful learning experiences you've ever had. And I, I invite your audience to do the same thing. So maybe someone said, I attended a lecture that such and such a person did, and it was inspiring. It was amazing. You know, I... Uh, and and it could be anyone, right? Like you could, you know, any any really amazing speaker. And that could be impactful. But for me, it was when I was immersed in a topic and my environment allowed me to explore that topic. So, you know, we, we there's a difference between adult learners and, and pedagogy, right? Like, you know, younger K through 12 type stuff. And, and um, a lot of it is the adult learner brings a lot of experience to the table when they come in to the session. And we have to respect that experience. And a great facilitator will respect that experience and will actually ask them to bring that experience out so that everyone can learn from it. And that's the key differentiator between that lecture and that very collaborative, that very guide on the side type approach. And that cannot be discounted. There's a, a, an amazing impact just from respecting the learner's knowledge and life experiences and allowing them to bring that in. Yeah, I've actually experienced that. And then some of my, I guess, better learning experiences, both from a enjoyment as well as um, retaining learning have come from those sorts of trainings where there was a space for us, us as a group or as a classroom for people to give feedback. Uh, the questions are informed uh, based on actual events and things that apply to all of us. Um, it just seems so much more relevant than, than going through a bunch of PowerPoint slides or through a, through a stock workbook, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Conversational learning is, is a big part of that, right? Um, it, it really, adult learning encourages collaboration and it's got to be very, very relevant. It has to really be important to the learner. Like they're attending this for a very specific reason, like, like we had mentioned before, which is either, you know, role or career development or personal development. I mean, there's a lot of motivating factors that can go into that with them, right? The what's in it for me. Um, but it has to be there. And then you have to really respect that adult learner and their knowledge and life experiences in order to get the most out of them in that course and allow them to be collaborative. Like you had said, I think personally, the best learning, uh, doesn't happen in isolation. The best learning happens when you're really practicing with others and exploring the topic with others and letting them bring their experience to the table to pull that together and really bring it to life. Yeah. Now, I wanted to explore something that's, um, I think, pretty specific to people in in, in corporate, right? There, we're not there to 
attend class, right? Like, like we're there to do a job and the training facilitates us to, you know, grow as professionals and do our jobs better, whatever that happens to be. Um, So by definition or, or just by default, we don't have a ton of reps or a ton of hours that we Mm -hmm. can spend in a classroom. The company has to balance, like we we need you to do the thing we hired you to do. And we're going to give you some training, but you can't spend you know, half of your year in, in training. Right. It's just, it's, we're not going to class here. That's correct. Um, so can you talk to me a little bit about how training, a, a lot of the impact of the training, and I've had these discussions with, you know, with Mike Kennedy and uh, mm-hmm. about that training, uh, other former KPMG uh, learning guru, um, how a lot of that learning takes place outside the classroom. Yeah. It, it may kick off inside, Yep. training, but a lot of it, I feel kind of has to happen on the job or sort of post-training. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So there's learning in the flow of work. So a, there's a, a fun stat and I forget, I can get you the reference, but I think it says in, you know, corporate learning, I think people dedicate, it's something like 10 minutes a week to, to learning, right? Out of their 40 hours, you know, whatever, whatever <laughs> wow. it actually is. Yeah. Uh, right. It's a little bit of an old stat because it feels like a lot more than 40, but um, so it's really not a lot of time for formal learning. So it has to be in the flow of work and it has to be on the job. And it, it kind of relates to what was considered an, uh, you know, it's still relevant, but it's kind of an older model of that 70, 20, 10, right? The learning that you get is, 10% of it is formal in the classroom or an e-learning or, you know, that SIM or something like that. 20% is through coaching and working with others and collaborative aspects, you know, while you're doing the work and, and 70% of your learning comes from actually on the job, right? So it's really what you're doing in the flow of work, your experiential learning, the ability to make a mistake and have that mistake corrected and learn from that mistake and build that scaffold up and keep building your knowledge through that experience. And that kind of relates back to what we're saying before, which is learning will only get you so far. It is not getting you to mastery. Mastery comes from practical application and practice and experience. Learning will get you to awareness and some level of competency in that skill or that that area. And that's the key. So learning in the flow of work and learning through work is a really big part of what you have to do. And learning doesn't, so a couple things, learning organizations don't own the strategy, they support the organizational strategy. And that's that we need to make sure that's very, very clear. So supporting that organizational strategy means supporting the learners to learn the skills and develop the way the organization needs them to develop, right? So with that said, learning doesn't own that flow of work, but learning can impact the flow of work learning, that experiential learning. Learning can help once the formal learning is done in providing coaching guidance to managers and and people who are responsible for developing others. It can provide, you know, pieces of information that can be little bits of info in the flow of work. You know, uh, you can you can align learning to systems training very easily. You can add, you know, layers over a system that allow people to check on a task or to uh, ask questions within the flow of learning so that they can, you know, write within that system or write within a document and things like that. So it's very, very relevant. It's very point of need, but it solidifies that learning that they got in that, that formalized space. And that that's how a learning organization can influence that 20 and that 70, but not really own it. And I think that's a, a key consideration is that you do have to consider how learning will impact those areas because that is where people do most of their growth. 
Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, I want to explore with you a little bit, Jeremy, um, this idea of effective learning, right? Because um, I've always been a big proponent that, you know, if you give someone like a checklist, mm -hmm. right, of, of things or like a framework, that is not really useful on the job because no one had, no one's going to wait for you to like take out a checklist and say, hmm, A, B, let me run the, like, like you actually have to respond in real time on the fly. So I'm curious how we get, and I understand why like the checklist is presented sure. and you got to give the framework, like that transition between theory and knowledge versus yeah. it's inside you, right? Like, like now, like, like driving a car, right? Like you can right. take all the prep classes you want but until you drive a car for i would say maybe like a year or two yep. you don't really know how to drive a car right you're just lucky that you haven't gotten a car accident yet sure well i mean there's a there's a couple things to unpack there so the the checklist the framework provides an expert model it gives someone to ground to it provides a safe space right mm -hmm. so i'll give you a simple example then i'll give you a very complex one a simple example being like i'm not good with excel right mm -hmm. So if you ask me to create a pivot table, I want that checklist because I will not do a good job. Or if you want me to do something like, you know, with a visualization, right? I want the checklist. I want the framework. I want the model that I can say, okay, click here, click here. Got it. And that's a technical example. Give you another example. And maybe I'll, I'll pose the question to you in the spirit of collaboration and, and discussion. <laughs> if you're getting on a flight, do you want the pilot using that pre-flight checklist? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> say yes, you do, right? So yeah. it does serve that purpose, right? It provides, again, that safe space. I don't want my pilot having to remember everything. I want it there, right? And then I want his thousand hours of 10,000 hours of practice in the sim to, you know, so that he knows how to handle any scenario or situation. And that's where that the checklist and the, the framework that you're talking about it starts that knowledge. It gives me that safe space. So even for Excel, if, if I wind up using pivot tables over and over and over again, I'm not going to need that checklist or framework anymore because I've already solidified the knowledge because I've practiced it. But it's giving me a starting point, which is extremely important, especially for the adult learner who maybe doesn't have an experience to latch on to in that specific topic or for something new. So it really does. That expert model is a key component to give you that safe space to then practice and explore and stuff like that. Or it gives you the ability to move past the rudimentary things like a pre-flight checklist to give a pilot, you know, I have to do all these things. I don't want him remembering it. I want him going through that checklist and that framework. And then I want him actually remembering and focusing on the things that are gonna save my life when we're flying, right? So there's, there's different uses for that checklist or that framework. And it can be, you know, either of those examples are, are I think, very valid uses of that. I, I, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I want to put a finer point on sure. it. How, what is the mechanism as you see it that takes you from, and, and let's let's use a different sort of checklist, like a, like, like a checklist on you're actually driving the car, right? Like as opposed <laughs> okay. to starting the car, right? Because it's yes. stationary, right? But right. you're not gonna look at a checklist while you're driving the car, like that, eventually. That yeah. is true. <laughs> so, so how do people get from that? Like what's actually going on when they get from the, the theory, the framework where I agree okay. with you 100%, you have to start to now, like, I just, I know that this is when I turn left, or this is when I need to break, or the amount of pressure that I need to apply. How, do, how does that 
happen? Because to me, like that's the real value. That's the real juice in the learning. Once you start to get to that, even if you're not at mastery yet, you're starting to get a little dangerous. So um, building upon experience, so really what you're doing is, is you're, <laughs> it's constructivist, right? And it's practice. And what you're doing is you're, you're taking short-term memory, the experience of I just got my permit and I'm practicing my left turns and I'm practicing my merging and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's short-term experience that as you keep applying it transitions to long-term memory. And that's a, a really key part that um, studies so studies in neuroscience really indicate that learners analyze and rationalize and synthesize and they develop new ideas or tweak old ones through the filter of their experiences. So you start with that very basic checklist. You start with that written test to give you the basics. And then you start building on that experience and you start scaffolding your understanding and approach. And that really is the constructivist learning theory that you're talking about is that new information must be connected to previous knowledge in order to be understood, retained, and then utilized. I love that. I didn't realize there was a name for that. Definitely appreciate <laughs> that. I'm going to have to look that up a little bit after our uh session. Um, What's interesting to me too is, and this will just be, you know, resonate with anyone, is in a way, a lot of times the experts or the people who are the best at something actually wind up not to be the (laughs) best teachers because they've actually forgotten. Yeah so yes. much like everything is so natural to them they, they actually couldn't break down the swing or you know the way you negotiate with something because they haven't really been thinking about it they've been responding yes. so automatically can you talk a little bit about that yeah i mean it, it it really is you know lending back to that sage versus guide kind of principle and <laughs> really having that empathy or that emotional understanding of where a beginner is in their journey and being able to relate to that in a way that makes sense to them. And what you said was great. Like I I'm, you know, I'm an, uh, I'm not me, but like uh, hypothetically, I'm an expert in, in my field. I'm, you know, like the, the most amazing neurosurgeon in the world does not necessarily mean you are going to be the most amazing teacher of neuroscience or, you know, or, or surgery or something like that. It, it, it doesn't necessarily lend itself because facilitation, like really adept facilitators are very good at breaking things down at simplifying tasks. So you take complexity and you make it simple, you make it attainable at providing expert models and guidance, but also understanding where people are in their journey and helping them along rather than just giving them all this amazing expert uh, experience, which is extremely valuable, of course, and expecting them to pull themselves up from that. That's a bit of a difference. And I think that's why, um, you know, some amazing baseball players make horrible coaches, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some very average baseball players become amazing coaches. And I think that's pretty cool because they understand the basics and they also understand that struggle, right? It's not a natural thing. So they don't take it for granted and they don't have the same expectations of the learner that maybe that all-star, 10-year all-star player would. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I could talk about the the pure learning concepts with you uh, all day long, Jeremy. It's like a clinic for me. So I really appreciate you sharing all this. Um, I want to um, sort of attach it a little bit to executive presence. Yeah. Um, And so the way I think about executive presence, and this isn't always the way it's taught, um, but it's the way I like to teach it. It's 
it's an interpersonal thing. It's about the energy between you and the other person. It's about the state that you have mm-hmm. inside yeah. that you create. Um, is that different or how might that be taught differently than let's say a technical skill? I'll use your Excel example, right? So yes. uh, call me crazy, but I think the way you teach someone how to make a pivot table is going to be a little bit different than the way you teach people to lead a team or to give constructive feedback or all those things. Can you share a little bit about how you start to really make an impact on those, I hate this word, but the softer skills, you know? Yes. And so uh, a, a friend of ours, I think I think you remember Mike Revis. I don't know if you sure. remember Mike. Yeah. So Mike, and, Mike and I, you know, we, we used to talk about soft skills and we used to call them power skills, right? Yeah, I really, love it. Yeah, exactly, right? That's a power skill. And executive presence is a power skill. That's a very powerful tool in your arsenal, right? And how you teach something, the topics can change and there might be different techniques within that pivot table versus emotional intelligence, uh, diversifying cognitive diversity in a team or you know anything that we're gonna you know, talk about for executive presence. But really the guidance on how to approach it is the same. So if I'm going to teach uh, a session and not teach, but if, you know, we're facilitating a session, I want to make that distinction again, kind of bring it back around. I want, if, if there's a classroom full of, you know, budding leaders or, or even mid-level leaders or even senior leaders, I need to connect to their emotions regardless, right? I need them to understand that this event, this learning had, will have an impact on your development, your team, your bottom line, your, you know, ROI, whatever that, that motivating factor is, that doesn't go away. If you're going to teach me pivot tables, it's going to make me, you know, help manage my team better because I can understand resourcing constraints better because I can pivot. Like there's a connection you can make regardless of the topic to that learner's emotions. And you have to be able to support their process through conceptual change. And what that means is, Either they had a preconceived notion or they do not have a clear notion of what you are trying to, you know, engage them with, what they're going to experience. And you need to challenge those presuppositions and help them gradually revise them. So showing expert models is a great way to do that. But also it's, you know, putting them into events or putting them into situations or sims or scenarios where they are challenged. And they have to really explore or examine their notions and their experiences to come up to 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 get to a deciding point or to get to you know the learning we want them to get to. Uh, so connecting to their emotions, a real world frame is key. Providing an expert model, letting them bring their experience to the table. Again, if I can bring my lack of experience of Excel and I can talk about my failures to you it's actually gonna help you as the facilitator help me even more. Same thing in a leadership development course or executive presence. If I can tell you struggles that I'm having relative to my team or relative to my experiences, it's going to make it so much more real for me, the learner. And it's going to apply, I'm going to be able to apply what you're going to put me into far greater than what we had talked about before, which is just that lecture, here's a book or, you know, here's a workbook or something like that. And I think that's really, really key. And then supporting learner collaboration. So if you have a group, you know, if you have somewhat of a homogenous audience and it doesn't even have to be homogenous, but let's say you have a group of senior leaders, you're talking about executive presence, 
you want that peer-based problem solving. You want that discussion. You want the exploration because now you're collecting all of their experiences and allowing them to use that to come to a solution, to you know, build up that case or to explore that simulated environment or whatever it may be. So I know I've said a lot, but really, I guess the bottom line is the techniques are somewhat the same regardless of the topic. So I still want to do these things in that Excel class um, and there's ways to do that, but I definitely want to do these things if I'm going to teach executive presence or, you know, leadership topics or, you know, business or software or power skill topics. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. You, you, you made me think of something um, in terms of the instructional element. So, you know, uh, my son and I, sometimes we do this um, silly thing where um, it'll be like a bad customer service simulator, right? Where okay. one of us will play the role of like the most snarky, jerkiest, kind of unfriendly, whatever, you know, cashier, waiter, whatever, right? And then the other one, we practice like handling it with poise and grace and, and not being pushed around, but like basically not escalating, right? Like not making things worse than they are and practicing what I would call, you know, equanimity, right? Which is mm -hmm. uh, one of the factors of executive presence that I teach, sure. you know, which basically a fancy way of saying, you know, staying cool, you know, in a, an escalating situation. Um, and I found, and I hope that that can be helpful because it's that kind of like simulation that you've been talking about. It's that practice where we're kind of pushing the person, right? Like we're pushing yes. the person's buttons to, to yep. not, have equanimity and they have to train themselves. And sometimes like you get caught, right? Sometimes you get caught and you're like, yeah, well, you're the jerk, right? But it, like you yeah, said, it's in a that's safe great, environment. Joe. So talk to me a little, like, like, is that yeah. helpful? Is that like something that can it, be Oh, totally, apply? 100%. So I'll give you a really great real world example. Um, I, I had gone through a performance consulting training. I was kind of auditing, I was watching it. I mean, I've, I've been a consultant, I've done performance consulting, work with stakeholders, you know, for my entire career. So you think this stuff kind of comes naturally or, you know, you just learn it on the job. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I was kind of, I'm sitting in the training and, I, and, and I was, we did a lot of role playing in this training. Right. And we did a lot of um, uh, a lot of like, okay, here's the scenario. You're the jerk, Joe. Like you're the, you're the stakeholder who is just like, has like this driving need to get something out of the vendor immediately. And then the other person would play that, that, consultant role, right? And you got to manage the situation and you've got to just get to a point of understanding why there's so much pressure on your client, right? You don't have to solve the problem. You don't have to like, you know, but you got to get to a point where you're understanding, oh, that's that guy's motivator. That's that, that woman's, you know, uh, factor that's really causing pressure. And it was really, really cool because I got to play the jerk, right? And mm -hmm. and I had a lot of fun playing that. I'm not shy. I'm very extroverted with that. So I was like really into the character, right? And not everybody's going to do that. And that's okay. But what it did was it, it actually made the person I was I was working with take it very seriously. Like she was really trying to understand what my pressure was and what, like, why was I driving her so hard to come to a solution when she doesn't even fully understand my problem yet. So it was wonderful practice, right? We did, I think it was like a 10 or 15 minute session was part of it. And it was really, really great practice. Then we got to flip that. So, it, you know, you want people to see both sides of the equation so they can have that emotional empathy, that emotional intelligence and understanding to the problem. And then they build their own context around it, right? And they apply it to their own role. So 
uh, you know, so that what you did with your son is exactly what we would do in certain trainings. And it's so much fun. Like I had so much fun being someone else because honestly, like I practice, you know, the equanimity, like I really try to be chill, even when things are going south on projects or like vendors are late or whatever. Like I try and be chill as much as I can and then I'll vent later or whatever. But it, it was really good to see that learning and to remind me of how these things happen. So I, I learned a lot from the role playing and from playing, you know, from being that person and then flipping it and then having to be the consultant and doing those things. So what you describe is fantastic. It, it reinforces the learning. It supports a comparative reasoning, which is a huge part of retention. You provide a comparative analogy. You provide multiple ways of looking at a problem. You're really solidifying that into long-term memory because you're approaching it in different ways. So kudos to you, right? And if you are going to coach people on executive presence, that's a great way to do it. Like let them role play, put them in a stressful situation. A stressful situation in a practice area is great because it preps them for the real stressful situation down the road. So like you're actually simulating that environment in what you're doing with your son and you're preparing him for stressful situations down the road that he'll probably be able to manage so much better because he will retain the learning that you've given him through these scenarios and through this role playing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it, it's something I've been playing around with and trying to incorporate into, into workshops and, and teaching because, you know, very comfortable with the whole sage on the stage thing, but realize that that doesn't always get you to the learning and isn't always appropriate or what people want, right? Sometimes people just want a keynote. They just want someone sure. to come out, throw the bells and whistles. But when people are actually trying to learn something, you know, there's other approaches uh, you can, you can yeah. use as well. Like it, it's, it's a tool in the toolkit, right? A keynote speaker, the sage on the stage, like it's got value, like definitely introduces a topic, gives you amazing things to think about. And, and a really good presenter is fantastic. They're engaging and you want to learn more, right? But it, that's the exploration part, right? That comes after. So I see that great keynote or that TED talk for 20 minutes on some aspect of neuroscience or learning or, or whatever it is. And it's really, really cool. And I'm very intrigued by it, but that's step one for me. The next step is really going out and finding more material, like really inspecting it under the lens of why it's impactful to me and then trying to apply it. And that's where the learning, that personal learning comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, it has been so much fun talking <laughs> to you, Jeremy. I want to end with, with one last insight, if I may. Um, I'm going to share with you uh, the, the definition that I use to teach executive presence and would love you to pull apart one piece that resonates sure. or, or something that you, you might apply to it. So the definition I use is executive presence is the ability to inspire confidence that you can lead well in a given situation. I'll say one more time. Executive presence is the ability to inspire confidence that you can <laughs> lead well in a given situation. So there, there's so much to break down there. <laughs> um, I'll say it really quickly. So what that does to me, and this is, this is just, again, I'm speaking for myself. In my studies and my travels on organizational leadership and, and really researching this a bit, that is a wonderful combination of situational leadership and servant leadership and really understanding not only the team, but the dynamic in the team and the situation you are in to instill that confidence. 
sometimes it is extremely appropriate to be, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for to play around, to laugh with your team, to like really be engaging with them in a fun and, and not, you know, like strictly work manner. Like we got to get this project done. And then other times it is extremely appropriate to be a lot more firm because it is also showing another type of confidence that, Hey, this leader's really got it, you know? And it's always important to make sure that your team knows that you have their back. And I think that's what you're getting as well. They have confidence in your ability to lead and they know they believe in your ability to lead and they believe that you will always have their back. And I think that's a key concept of, of leadership and executive presence. Wow. Thank you so much for being our guest, Jeremy Manjoran of uh, the New York Federal Reserve, Chief Learning Officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Uh, really appreciate all your insights today. Joe, it was such a pleasure. I can't thank you enough for letting me come on and talk about learning for 40 minutes. Like that is, I mean, that that's my happy place. So <laughs> I think my the passion for it comes through and I, I really just appreciate the work you're doing and the podcasts and, uh, you know, keep posting. And, and, and I think you're doing such a great job, Joe. Thank you so much. Thank you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, listening can't wait to be with you again join us next time for another tasty executive presence morsel